This is our 18th sermon in the book of Romans. We still find ourselves in chapter 2. My heart would be before the end of the year we could finish chapter 2 and by January be into chapter 3. We will do our best and follow the Lord. Let's review just a few verses. We'll read uh, Romans 2 one through five. The last time we were together, we really looked in depth at verse three, verse four. We'll read those again, talk about that for just a minute. And then we're really gonna dive into verse number five because next time we're in Romans, there's a thought here that plays out in verse six through 10 that we really need to try to do together. That may be two parts, but there's a whole complete thought here that we need to try to finish. But going to verse number one of Romans two. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doesest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doeth the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of God. This thought continues in the condemnation of mankind. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The first few chapters of Romans really deals with condemnation, the righteousness of God, the error of man, the depravity of mankind apart from God. Much of what the Apostle Paul is teaching here has to do with people who do not have Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life. We've said multiple times in multiple sermons that a study of Romans, especially the first four or five chapters even, will make you a very thankful person for what God did in your life when he saved you. And if you're lost and you're undone and you're looking on the outside, looking in at the benefit and the blessing of being a Christian, it may open your eyes to the error of your way. Uh, Romans is truly uh, sort of the manual for systematic theology for all the New Testament. Uh, This is sort of the uh, uh, book of learning for all things. We're going through the condemnation. We're looking at the judgment of God, the wrath of God. But to come in Romans and be encouraged by this, we'll know more about justification, sanctification, and the waiting, pending glorification of those that are in the faith. Romans is a wonderful book, but we're still here in the midst treading through this condemnation. But when we look at the condemnation, it should not discourage us. Rather, it should encourage us. Let's look at this verse that we looked at last time we were in Romans, verse number four. We talked about this in detail. If you missed sermon 17, the easiest thing for you to do is to go to the Trinity YouTube page, find Romans sermon 17, listen to that, and that will go with tonight's study. That way you have the entire Oreo 
both the cookie and the cream. Everybody say amen. All right, verse number four says, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. We talked about Moses a little bit. We tied it back to what God gave to Moses and the instruction that God gave Moses and how Moses obeyed. Moses was afraid. Moses wanted God to go with him. Moses wanted more assurance of his glory and his presence. And God gave him the gift of knowing that the goodness of God imparted to Moses was actually part of the glory of God. We talked about that. In other words, when God looks at you, one of his children, he sees something that he can get glory in. That should absolutely blow our minds that God would look at me as fractured and as fallen and as sinful and as wicked as I was, that he would love me enough to save me, to call me, to draw me, to woo me, to love me, and that he would look at me, and the Bible says, choosing to forget my sin, choosing to forget my iniquity, that my sin is literally on his back, on his shoulders, so that every time he turns, every time he looks, he does not see my sin, rather he just sees the blood of his son, Jesus. That's described in the words that we processed One of those words in that verse is forbearance. The forbearance, the goodness and the forbearance, the long-suffering of God. This word forbearance means to hold back. It actually was used to bring forth a truce between warring parties. In other words, this was my truce, this was my truce, my peace treaty that was made with God. I was an enemy of God. Without Jesus, I was born a natural enemy of God. And in his forbearance, in his long-suffering, in his kindness, in his goodness, in his mercy, my personal testimony is that he allowed me, he gave me 15 years on this earth before I surrendered, before the draw and the power of the Holy Spirit convicted me. He allowed me to live long enough to see the goodness and the glory and be convicted and be saved. That's part of the long suffering and the forbearance of our God. Uh, My hope, my prayer for my country is more forbearance. My prayer is that God would hold back one more generation of complete judgment. That's my prayer. Uh, We do not deserve his forbearance. To whom much is given, much is required. There is no uh, country, there is no civilization in the history of mankind that has ever had more goodness and mercy and blessing and gift than we have. But I'm asking God, I'm pleading with him, I'm begging with him, God, would you in the character of your forbearance, if it would bring you glory, if it's in your perfect or your permissive will, would you be long-suffering just one more generation? Would you allow the church to thrive one more time? We'll be, on, we'll, we'll be absolutely sure to give you all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise. Uh, the real thing we've got to remember here is at some point, there is an end to the long-suffering. There is an end to the forbearance. And at some point, right before or during the tribulation, the hand of God will completely come off of the land. 
and there will be absolute utter darkness and evil. I'm asking the Lord to raise up a generation of salt. We need decay-stopping power in the church, the forbearance and the long-suffering of God. And in this, this verse asks, despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? In other words, does the blessing of God, your salvation, all that he's done as American Christians, we talked about this, not only do we have salvation, not only do we have the church and each other, but then we have the blessing of this country. Uh, American Christianity, we talked about that in detail. 2 Corinthians 7.10, the act of repentance, more of this now in 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. We gave this quote last time, we'll give it one more time. J.I. Packer, the great theologian said, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows, these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. The longer you live, the more you know about life, the more you know about yourself, your sin, what you are weakened to, the more you are to give to God and ask him to help you to turn from sin. Repentance is an about face forward march. It's going in one direction and then turning around and going in the complete opposite direction of where you were headed. I believe with all my heart that Christian people, people who are changed forever by salvation, that there is a different path for us to live. The old dead man dies. There's a new creature that's born. And that creature, that new man, that saved person is to live differently than he did before. It's a very simple two plus two equation. Uh, you'll never be able to convince me in any way, shape, form, or fashion that saved people are not to live differently than they did before. It just does not add up. It may not be convenient. It may not be easy, but there is a call. There's an expectation. There is a draw. And dare I may say, there is a desire for different things after you are saved. It does not mean I reach sinless perfection. It does not mean that I will never come to a season of doubt or, or, or even sin. But it does mean that something on the inside has changed. An about face forward march. 2 Peter 3.18 is a great place for us to pivot here. It says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. The more I know of him, the more things I find wrong with me. The, no, the more I know Jesus, I look at myself, the more problems I find with myself. The more I look at who I am, my understanding, my way of doing things, the more I know of Jesus, the weaker I find myself to really be. This is growing in the grace and the knowledge 
of Jesus. This is our pastor emeritus life verse, John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. All right, back to Romans 2, verse number 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The word hardened there or hardness, this is the same word in English that's used for sclerosis, particularly arteriosclerosis. And if you know anything about cardiology, if your doctor has handed you a piece of paper before and you get discharged papers from the ER or from the hospital or your doctor's giving you a new medication because of a new problem, a new issue, and you have seen on that piece of paper arteriosclerosis, this is the same word, it's the same meaning. It's a hardening of the arteries in your heart. It's a plaque buildup that takes place in the vessels and the chambers of the heart that causes swelling and constriction. And eventually it gets to a place where stenosis happens or a blockage happens and then blood no longer flows to that portion of the heart and then someone has what we like to call a heart attack or a myocardial infarction. It's where the blood stops. It's where death begins in the heart. He's talking about hardening of the heart. This is someone who has heard the truth. This is someone who has been exposed to light. And it's a warning to that person that you cannot unhear, you cannot remove yourself or strip away light that has been received. Once the truth has been exposed to your heart, once God has shown you through his word what is right and what is wrong, and you harden your heart against that truth, against that light, that God is in the business of remembering that infraction against you. This is one of the most scary, deadly verses in all of the New Testament. This teaches very clearly that impenitent or people who refuse to repent, that's what that word is. It's a refusal to do the about face forward march. It's someone who has been told the truth to go the other direction, yet they refuse. The apostle Paul teaches that God is storing up for that person more wrath and more judgment at the white throne seat of judgment that's coming for every man and for every woman in this room. Impentinent hearts. That's why, again, your salvation is such an enormous thing. The forgiveness of your sin is such an enormous thing. If you are saved and you are on your way to heaven and when God looks at you, he does not see your sin, your shortcoming or your failure, but rather he sees nothing but the blood of his darling son. You have something tonight to say amen and shout about. You do. If you're saved and you're on your way to heaven, you have something to shout about, to be happy about, 
to rejoice over because this damnation, this charge against the unredeemed is so egregious and it's so horrible that God is literally keeping a record of every opportunity that person had to do right and they chose to do wrong. This is a holy God, an omniscient God, an omnipresent God who sees all, who knows all, who understands all, and he's keeping a perfect record book of every infraction ever made against his holiness. But you, child of God, are no longer living in the light of that same judgment. You are living as one who gets judged as a son or a daughter. You've been given eternal life. Your debt has been paid. Your judgment has been stayed. And it happened because Jesus loved you enough to die for you. And the Holy Ghost did the perfect work and convicted you and saved you. And you'll never know what it is to feel the full wrath of God. Somebody in this Baptist church say amen. amen. Praise God. I'll never know what that wrath really is. I'll never be separated from God one single day for the rest of eternity. I may struggle in this world, in this life. I may have dark days. I may have doubting days, but nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. No matter how dark it gets outside, no matter how tough it is to live for Jesus, nothing can separate me from Jesus in this life. And what's waiting for me on the other side is eternal bliss. It's the peace and the presence of being in the presence of God for all of eternity, saved, sanctified, and one day, praise God, glorified. Never to sin again. Never to sin again. Not one more time will I ever know what it is to disappoint my God. Praise God, a perfect place where I'll never fail him again. And I'll never experience his judgment. He hardeneth his heart. This is why we must carry a burden for lost people that have no idea what's coming. Someone needs to warn them. Their house is on fire. It's being consumed faster than they can run from it. There's no backroom deal to be made. There is no gray area. You're either saved and on your way to heaven and you're living for Christ, you're pursuing him, grace and mercy are following you or they're not. Well, I'm sitting in a blue chair tonight. I volunteer, I give money. I support ministries. We're not talking about works. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about sin that must be forgiven. The wages of sin is what? I didn't say that. I'm repeating the word of God. The wages of sin is what? It's what? Death. And I'm not talking about death like you see in a movie or a Hallmark Christmas movie. I'm talking about the eternal death where he says, depart. I never knew you. Oh God. 
for all of eternity, I'll never know you. And I'll never come to you with more mercy or with more grace. This is it. You had your chance. And that should break our hearts for those who are blinded by the God of this world. The church must carry the burden of the condemnation, not as those who are to be condemned, but by praying for those who will be condemned. This is why the old saints used to weep at the altar. This is why they would come and weep and cry to God and say, God, save my husband, save my wife, my daughter, my son, my cousin, my friend. He's lost. He's dying. And he's on his way to hell. The church is separated from the condemnation, but it cannot simply egregiously ignore the condemnation that's to come. But there is judgment coming. Ezekiel 36, 26. There's more here. So heavy. A new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. Look what he says here. Look how this perfectly upholds everything the apostle Paul is saying. This is in Ezekiel This is thousands of years before. A new heart also will I give you. This is the new man. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. In other words, I'll take the stony, concreted, wicked heart. And I'll give you a heart that's tender to the manipulation and the movements of the master. Go to Mark chapter 3. Mark 3. Look at this. This is Jesus. And he entered again into the synagogue and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. Okay, let's let's get this in context. Jesus is in the synagogue. The Pharisees are there in the synagogue. They're watching. They know, listen now, that we're going now into the wickedness of man's heart, the true nature of the Pharisee. The Pharisee is not concerned with the man with a withered hand being healed. They're more concerned if Jesus is going to do what they want him to do or if he's going to break their legalistic rules. And he entered again into the synagogue and there was a man which had a withered hand and they watched him whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. Accuse him of what? Healing. And he said unto the man which had the withered hand. Okay, withered is maimed, deformed, an injury. He's had an infection. He was born with it. He has fingers that are missing. Something is not right with this man's hand. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, stand forth. And he said unto them, to the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they held their peace. In other words, they didn't have nothing to say. And when he had looked around about on them with anger, this is Jesus now. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved 
for the hardness of their hearts. He saith unto the man, stretch forth thy hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the others, as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway, that means immediately, took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Anger. Jesus is looking at those Pharisees. He knows their hearts. Remember, he's all God and he's all man. He walks into that synagogue knowing the thoughts, the mind, the heart, the manipulations, the motivations of every person in that room, including the man with the withered hand. And the Bible says that Jesus looked at all those people who were trying to trip him up in healing this man's hand. And the Bible says that Jesus was angry. Angry. How was Jesus angry? I thought Jesus did not sin. You're right. It's called righteous indignation. You see, the nature of God is to be displeased with immorality with sin, and with things that go contrary to his consistency of holiness. Anything that goes against the consistency of God's holiness is something that God can righteously find displeasure with. And you as a Christian, you as a believer, it is healthy for you to see human unrighteousness and there be a healthy dose of righteous indignation. But there is a fine line where your flesh gets ahead of yourself. And boy, howdy, I struggle some days with what my flesh and what my mouth want to do to correct the problem. You said what to my wife? Your life is in danger. You did that to my friend? Oh, batter up. Let's roll. There's something in all of us. Yeah, or is this just me? Okay, I'm not the only one. But there's something that's healthy about a Christian looking at something that's unrighteous and there being anger, not because you're better, but because it is displeasing to your God. Hey, that dishonors the Lord. We shouldn't do that. There are some parents that need to go to PTA meetings and simply with kindness, respect, and take that moral high ground that God's given Christians and stand one more time for what's right as it pertains to what's going on in our education system. Righteous indignation. And the hardness of their hearts. These Pharisees were so far gone. I've got to get the rest of this out. These Pharisees were so far gone that they could not even understand what was taking place. They were so enraged with their own viciousness towards Christ that they could not even for one moment rejoice in the fact that the man's hand had been restored. They were completely unresponsive to the truth that Jesus was who he said he was. And going back to Romans 2.5, there you find that heart again that refuses to repent, the impenitent heart. And then to reject the offer of forgiveness from God. If the Holy Spirit of God is dealing with you, if you've been under conviction for a while, if you know you're lost and you're undone and pride keeps getting in the way, 
if conviction has been at your pillow at every meal and you know you're lost and you're undone, this would be a great night to evaluate what Jesus did in that synagogue, which was to take someone who did not deserve it and to look at them with pity, even when it didn't make sense to the crowd, and love them right where they are and change their life. The Bible says it restored him whole. That's what Jesus does to people. You come in contact with him, he saves you, he restores you, and he gives you a new life. Go to the book of Acts and we'll finish. Go to chapter 8, rather 9 for the sake of time. Now, we're going to step outside of this for just a second. Remember who is writing this letter. Pastor Nathan already knows where I'm going with this. Remember who is writing this letter. Who is it? Who's writing it? Paul. Who said Paul? Did you say that, Miranda? Good job. Ten points. The Apostle Paul's writing the letter of Romans. And here in Acts, in chapter 9, we find his conversion. Okay, who did I say was in the synagogue watching Jesus heal the man with a withered hand? What group? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. What was the Apostle Paul right before his conversion on the Damascus Road? A Pharisee. And if you'll notice this man named Paul who had letters to go do harm to the church, to imprison Christians, to go as far as Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem for punishment, for imprisonment. Something took place on this road to Damascus. And this, I submit to you, is Jesus reaching into the heart and to the life of the Pharisee who didn't have a withered hand, but this Saul, this Pharisee who would become Paul, he didn't have a withered hand, but he had a withered heart. And even in his wickedness and his vileness towards Christ, look at the love and the mercy and the compassion of God towards this wicked Pharisee who hated even the name of Jesus and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, being Christians, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou? Lord, and the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecuteth. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, arise and go into the city and it shall be told of thee what thou must do. Getting ready in the city was a man named Ananias, verse number 10. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus. Paul's right there who knew the name Saul and knew what Saul was there to do. 
continue, named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, behold, I'm here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, arise and go into the street, which is called straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. And he hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard uh, by many of this man how evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. But God had a plan to take this Pharisee whose heart was withered and hard like stone and call him out of death into blinding light. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him saith, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And look what happens. Verse number 20. Here it is again. And straightway, and straightway, immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. This is what happens when God goes and gets the heart of one who refuses to see the truth and does what only the Holy Ghost of God can do. And that's to take a man who's literally on his way to destroy the beginning of the church, to imprison the Christians, yet Jesus had a different plan. And now Saul, who should have been condemned unto death for all eternity, God is going to use to reach Jew and Gentile and pen letters that would change redemptive history for time and for eternity. And here we are in Asheville, North Carolina, over 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about the withered-hearted Saul man who was saved on the Damascus Road. And he told you and he told me in beautiful, canonized, holy text that God is a God of holiness and righteousness and one day there is judgment coming, but Saul, who is now Paul, would not taste that wrath nor judgment because of what Jesus did on the Damascus Road. Who's thankful tonight to be saved and on your way to heaven? Praise his holy, holy, precious name that I never, ever have to taste the judgment, the condemnation of God because of Jesus. Not anything I could do for myself but what he did for me on my Damascus Road. My Damascus Road was in June of 2005. I was 15 years old. We were in the old building. It was on a Wednesday night. Wednesday night. And I felt like it was granddaddy and one little 15-year-old boy, not a little 15-year-old boy, but one 15-year-old boy sitting on the second row on the right-hand side of the sanctuary. And I felt like it was just me, him, and God in that room. And I had my moment where the Holy Ghost of God came by and set on me so heavy, I thought I couldn't breathe. 
And for once, it did not matter who my granddaddy was, who my grandmama was, that my mom and dad were missionaries, that my great-granddaddy heritage had nothing to do with that moment. But it had everything to do with my personal relationship. And I'm burdened tonight that there's someone here under the sound of my voice. This may be one of the last opportunities that God gives you to hear and to see clearly what needs to happen. You may have been under conviction for months. You may just now in these last few 30 minutes be under conviction. You may be worshiping online and not even here in the building. But wherever you are, whoever you are, examine yourself tonight. Eternity is too important. Eternity is too long. The greatest lie the devil will ever sell or ever tell you that you could believe is that what happens here in this vapor is what really matters. The only thing that happens in this life that matters is what you do with Jesus. And if you're here tonight and you're not right with God, if you're a Christian who's living in sin, this is your night to remember the goodness and the mercy of God that follows after you every day of your life and come to him and apologize for your conduct and then ask him to do what only he can to restore you and to use you to reach others around you. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Be very careful here in the last few minutes of our time together tonight. Is there anyone here under the sound of my voice that say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm lost. I need to be saved. Would you pray for me? No one's moving. No one's looking around. Would you simply just raise your hand or make eye contact with me? I'm not saved. I'm not sure I'm saved. Pray for me. Would you just slip your hand up anywhere here in the sanctuary so I know how to pray as your pastor? Anyone? Anywhere? If you're watching online, worshiping tonight, would you email us? Find the church email, info at tbcashville.org. Email your question. Somebody will answer. Info at tbcashville.org. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, Jesus cares. He loves you. He died for you. And you do not have to go to an eternity without your withered heart corrected. You can know peace even in this life and then spend all of eternity in home in heaven. Holy Father, now in Jesus' name, we plead the blood of Jesus Christ. We submit this at your feet. I'm an imperfect vessel. I do not have the tenure. I do not have the experience. Father, I do not have the wisdom nor the knowledge, but I know what you've put in my heart tonight. And Father, to the best of our ability, we've been faithful to preach what you put in our, in our heart. God, I'm begging you to do the work that only you can do. I cannot save a single person. I cannot do the work of the Holy Ghost. But Holy Ghost, you can do the work. And you are perfect and you are powerful and you are able. And I pray tonight that if there's someone here, God, that's fooled themselves in pride, if they're holding on to an appearance for the sake of what others will say, I pray now that you'll begin to break chains. Lord, it may not be tonight. It may not be tomorrow. Father, it may be three or year, four years from now. Lord, we don't know. You do all things well. It's up to you. You save them. You draw them. You woo them. Lord, they belong to you. Do it for thy will, for thy glory. And in thy time, we put it in your capable hands to do the work that only you can. Now, Lord, my prayer as pastor is, God, that you would raise up some people in our church, God, to carry the burden for lost people. 
Lord, that we would once again refresh our hearts with a newness of prayer and God, that we would repent for our omission to pray for lost people. Lord, we're sorry for failing. Lord, I'm sorry, God, for not asking you to save lost people more. Help me to carry that burden better. Help me to be a better pastor, a better husband, a better friend. Lord, I ask you to start with me tonight and do what only you can do. Lord, I thank you for my salvation. Thank you for saving me. I bless your holy name for saving me. You did not have to. You did not need me to be God or to be holy. But in love and in grace and in mercy, you came by my way. And I thank you. And I worship you. And Lord, I want to make you proud. I want it to be a good purchase under the storehouse of heaven. Use me. Mold me. Make me. Shake me into what you want. And that be the prayer of our heart tonight. God, we pray for Pastor Donnie Walker. Lord, wherever he is tonight, touch him. God, we pray for Bascom Ray, who serves on the finance committee. Lord, touch him tonight. Lord, a special touch from heaven. Do what only you can do. Touch his body, encourage his heart. Lord, for our general, for Brother Jerry. God, go to him tonight and bless him, encourage him. God, in these winter years of his life, may he feel loved and appreciated by this church. Bless our pastors, our staff, the team that serve. God, I thank you for them, the hours they pour in that no one ever sees, the conversations, the hugs, the tears they cry. Honor them for their labor of love. Thank you for our deacons, those that serve. Thank you for our beautiful church, the campus that you've given us. Help us to cherish it and to love it. We love you tonight. We give thanks for what you're going to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.